So you'll remember that Canto 32 ended with Virgil and Dante, quite far out now into this region of Cocytus, as if walking on an icy lake, but that's actually an infernal, cold, frozen glass, close to absolute zero. And they'd seen two of the heads that are poking up above the frozen material, gnawing at each other, cannibalizing each other. And that's where Canto 33 picks up, because one of the heads stops biting at the brain of the other and says, I'm Count Ugellino, and this other soul is Archbishop Ruggieri. And Ugellino tells his story. It's one of the best known from the Inferno, partly because it's so grisly, but it's also one of the stories that provokes the most debate because in a way from start to finish, it's not quite clear why Ugellino is so far down into hell. And I think that Dante does that quite deliberately. So let me try and make the most of the story that Ugellino says um, to see how far we can get with it. His story is roughly that he was thrown into a tower, a tower of hunger, by his opponent in life, Archbishop Ruggieri. And then the tower was nailed shut, and he and his four sons, who were thrown into this prison with him, starved to death. Ugellino tells his story um, at one level in a fairly obviously self-centred way. Um, he doesn't mention that his sons were there till quite a long way in. He's very concerned that Dante is moved by his story, that Dante understands the suffering, not just knows the details of how he and Ruggieri fell out. So he wants his, he wants pity. He wants um, his side of the story to be heard. Um, he talks about having had a dream. He imagines Ruggieri's um, team sides like a wolf pack chasing him and his cubs down and in the dream they capture him and their fangs rip apart their flesh. Um, he notices when Dante isn't weeping he says how can you listen to my story and not weep? What would it take to make you weep? And then we get to the bit about his children. After a few days of the door being locked um, they say to him, Father, why aren't you helping us? He is strikingly stoical. He says he remains silent. He bit his hand. And then the story gets even more grisly because his sons say to him, Eat us. We're the product of your flesh. Let us give our flesh back to you. Um, and it makes you wonder what kind of father-son relationship would lead to the son offering their life for the life of the father. It makes you wonder whether they are completely used to living in their father's shadow, fulfilling their father's needs, their father's desires. And of course, it's also striking in the absence of what Egelino doesn't offer his sons. He doesn't offer to pray for them. He doesn't offer to um, show compassion for them. 
He doesn't even try to get out of the tower. Um, he's completely trapped, you might say, in his own self-pity. Um, and then it ends with the sons gradually dying, one by one, until finally on the seventh day, Ugolino ends his story saying that his hunger was more powerful than his grief, with the possible implication that he ends up cannibalising his sons. But that's left open too, even that's left unclear, as if Ugolino is leaving the story um, undecided so that you're almost compelled to feel pity for him. Now, there is some grounds for feeling pity for Ugolino. Um, the history tells us that he had been um, uh, a, an ally of Ruggieri, the archbishop that he's now locked in infernal combat with. Um, and what had happened was Ruggieri, in a way, betrayed him um, because Ugolino had given away some of his castles. It seems to try to do a diplomatic deal with the opposing side in the Italian wars. But then Ruggieri had used that as evidence against Ugolino, and hence the Pisans had turned against Ugolino too. Um, but in a way, the history and all that the commentators try to make of the history can't really tell us about the inner state of this person's soul. You know, two people may do precisely the same acts, and yet the state of their soul can be completely different. And I think that's really at the heart of why Dante leaves this story, with all its grisly detail, still somehow unclear, undecided. We're being invited to consider the state of Ugolino's soul. We're in not knowing quite how to decide on that, asked to consider the state of our own soul. Do we know our own souls well enough? How would we have responded in such a situation? Where, as it were, why, might we be ending up? But I think that we are given enough to indicate that what Dante is really starting to perceive now in this frozen wasteland is that this is a place where love has left. Um, you might say that when he first encountered the two brothers in the land of Ke'ine, who had killed each other, um, they hated each other, it was murderous rage that turned them on each other, but at least there was still passion. When we get to Ugolino, um, he seems self-concerned for sure, but not with the love that realises that others exist, to use Iris Modoc's expression, the painful realisation that others exist. And even more so, I think, for Dante, is that this is the disappearing love that might draw souls back to God. That is how love moves the whole cosmos and all the life within it, by equipping that life to want to strive to return to the divine from whence it's come. And Ugolino here in his self-obsessed story, um, particularly in what he doesn't offer his sons, I think, shows that that love uh, that one might want to make him move back to the divine, even in his most dire moment, um, you might say turning 
a, a horribly empty death into at least a tragic death that might genuinely inspire our pity, might genuinely cause Dante down there to weep for him. That love has gone. This is now the state of affairs that Dante finds himself in, in this deep, dark pit. The history also tells us that Ugolino actually betrayed his grandson, Nino Visconti, um, but that in itself doesn't seem to be enough to lead him down here. So again, makes you wonder, you know, if it's not egoism, if it's not betrayal, if it's not even cannibalism, what might it be? Dante, the pilgrim, responds actually by cursing Pisa, who had not just locked Ugolino, who might have done, um, you know, treasonous things in the tower, but with his sons too. And Pisa is cursed by Dante um, for um, punishing not the father, but also the children of the father. Now, Ugolino could have cursed Pisa himself, and yet doesn't. He remains self-preoccupied. He hasn't got that love that might move his heart, um, even against Pisa, um, let alone on the side of his children. Incidentally, it's rather interesting how Dante does curse Pisa and break that old sense that the children are tainted by the father's um, sins too. Um, you know, that's a very old tradition within Judaism and Christianity. Um, and I think it speaks to this change of consciousness um, that the individual now um, has the huge responsibility, both of their own responses to the divine love, um, but also for the cultivation of their life in relation to others. Um, they're not just part of the kind of miasma of generational family infection, um, loyalty, um, even pride and the good side um, of belonging to a certain tribe and all that that group might give you. Um, Dante is very much stressing in this moment that what he's focusing on is the individual and their response to God. Um, that's what he, as the poet, I think is signalling to us is so hideously absent here. You might say that this was the greatest moment of Ugolino's life, dire as it was, and the greatest moments require, require the, the greatest responses, the greatest potential for transformation even, um, and Ugolino failed in that moment. Um, I guess all that he'd become in his life to that moment meant he didn't have the resources to be moved by love. So in giving so much space to this story of Ugolino with all its vividness, it's sort of one of the unforgettable stories of the Inferno. Dante's also creating what you might call a tropological moment in us. Um, it's a moment where we ask ourselves how we might respond, what's missing in our hearts, but also that can still be a moment for us to, in the worry, begin to cultivate a turning back to God insofar as that's true. It alerts us once more to um, the love, not just for others, um, but also the love that might encourage our ascent back to the divine. It's another one of these moments where the descent, the story of Ugolino's, Ugolino's um, uh, desperate state of mind now might aspire something of an ascent in us. And I think Dante the Pilgrim um, is right in that moment here in Canto 33. You know, how's he going to respond? 
what is going to be his um, capacity to either turn um, or not back to the divine. At the end of the encounter with Ugolino, things move on very speedily and we're told that Dante and Virgil find themselves now in um, the third region um, of Cocytus. It's called Ptolemaeo, probably named after Ptolemy, the Egyptian pharaoh who brutally killed Pompey um, during the Roman Civil War. Um, and here they see souls whose heads are looking up. They're not looking down, they're not looking forward, but they're looking up. And the horrible detail that transpires with, from this new position is that in their tears um, that they shed for their dark state get frozen into their eye sockets um, so that their tears become visals and they can't see. There's a, an interesting detail that Dante and Virgil note as they move into this new region because Dante feels a wind and he's surprised at this because this is the place where there's no movement and there's certainly no warmth that might stir up a wind. Um, spiritually, there's no love, there's no spirit, there's no fire um, that might cause a movement of the spirit, a wind. And he turns to Virgil and asks, you know, how come there's a wind down here? And Virgil says, your eyes will soon see how that wind is caused. It's going to come for us in the next canto. Um, but right now, with the, the cause of this wind left unclear, I think it serves to emphasise how this is a place of emptying out. And it turns out that the souls in Ptolemaeo are emptied even more than Ugolino. In fact, they are devilishly animated dead souls. Um, it's said that in this region are found souls of bodies that are still walking the earth, but their souls had reached such states of depravity, both maybe in their actions, but I think, again, more profoundly um, in their inner life, that the souls had already descended to this low place. They were already in this state, even before the bodies had died. Dante speaks with one soul in particular, Friar Alberigio. Um, he's one of the jovial friars. We've encountered some of them before. Um, followers of Francis, who in a way weren't really followers of Francis because they lived um, a regular material kind of life. Um, Alberigio's down here, he says, because when he gave figs to some guests, um, they've, he's now been returned with dates to eat down here. Um, and this is an allusion to how Alberigio had arranged for some guests to be slaughtered when they were at his table while he was offering them figs. Um, and um, in a way, that's the surface crime that he committed. Um, but in a way, I think that's just the symptom of a deeper deadness within his soul, which meant that he ended up down here. Um, it's, it's really striking. He thinks Dante's dead. He's one of the first souls we meet who can't tell that Dante's alive. If you remember, all the souls further up in hell had seen that and had been surprised and shocked and sort of dumbstruck by that. Well, Alberigio, the life has left him so much that he can't even tell when someone else is alive down here. And he does a deal with Dante. He says, if you will remove 
these icy blocks of tears that are covering my eyes, then I'll tell you the story of another soul who's down here, another Florentine, um, and that turns out to be a chap called Bracca Doria. Um, but at the end of the story, um, Dante refuses to remove the icy blocks from Alberigio's eyes. In fact, when you track the story, you realise that Alberigio had asked Dante to remove his frozen tears three times, and Dante refuses to do so. And I think this is signalling how Dante's own soul is suffering the risk of this state of mind as well. Um, you'll remember that I thought that in the earlier um, regions of Cocytus, he had, um, in pulling the hair of the soul that he'd encountered there, had got caught up in the kind of murderous treachery of that region. And I think that this um, happens again here now, because of course, refusing to help someone when they've asked three times in the Christian imagination immediately reminds you of Peter betraying Christ three times and then Christ asking Peter later, do you love me three times? It puts Dante himself in the role of the betrayer and I think shows that Dante, upon reflection, is going to have to realise that his own soul lost almost all of the love that can act towards another human being um, that might move them back to God. That is the extent, not just of the hatred now, but the emptiness that's a possibility which he must see. I think because it's this crucial thing that the greatest moments in our life um, are also the potentially the greatest moments of spiritual transformation. And um, when things are most dire, they're also most... Um, contain the most potential for flipping to the most sort of fulfilled because they bring out you might say um, the best part of us well down here Dante's realizing that that is no automatic response um, and so he refuses to help Al Barigio. Dante's actually doing an even worse thing because Bracco Doria is actually still alive and in fact we now know he dies after Dante died and so what Dante is doing is condemning, judging um, Bracco before he's even died, um, which is to say Dante is living in a universe where there's no forgiveness, there's no divine love that might move a soul even at the last minute. That is the state of mind that Dante the Pilgrim is now in. He's thoroughly, you might say, in this region of Cocytus too. He's not just condemning a living man as if he were God, um, he's condemning a living man as if there were no God. That is what his soul is now experiencing. It's becoming frozen as well. And if, as if to emphasise that, the canto ends with Dante the Pilgrim turning on the Genovese, much as he turned on the Pisans earlier in the canto. Um, and this time he says, if only there were a genocide, that would remove you all from the face of the earth. This is a blanket condemnation, not even seeing the individual souls now. That is how desperate things have got, not just for the souls that Dante sees down here, but this is now the precipice that he, Dante the Pilgrim, is leaning right over now. 